This Old Testament reading is from Job chapter 10, verses 1 through 7 and 18 through 22. I loathe my very life, therefore I will give free rein to my complaint. I speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a mortal sees? Are your days like those of a mortal or your years like those of a strong man? But you must search out my faults and probe after my sin, though you know I'm not guilty and that no one can rescue me from your hand. Why then did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I had died before any eye saw me. If only I had never come into being or had been carried straight from the womb to the grave. Are not my few days almost over? Turn away from me so I can have a moment's joy before I go to the place of no return, to the land of gloom and utter darkness, to the land of deepest night, of utter darkness and disorder, where even the light is like darkness. The word of the Lord. It's wonderful to be with. All of you, as we reflect on this uh, passage and what is a a great piece of human literature that we also believe is inspired by God and given to us to reflect upon today for our edification, for our growth, for an invitation into uh, His life. And He invites us to pray in a variety of, of ways, as we've seen in this series, The Great Prayers of the Bible, and Job has some very um, unique and particular things to tell us. So, let me pray as we get started. Father, would you guide us as we reflect upon this passage, and we pray that you would be with us, that you would be near us, that we would see this as an invitation not simply to contemplate you, but to enter into a conversation with you, to be in relationship with you. Wherever we're coming from, whether we have significant doubts that you are real and can be known, or whether we're convinced of it, and we follow in the path of Job, seeking you out in prayer, I pray that you would meet us. I pray that we would take a step toward you and follow the truth wherever it leads. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Simpsons episode entitled Hurricane Nettie, Ned Flanders has his home destroyed by a flood and his business is looted by an angry mob, and this throws him into a theological crisis. So he goes to see his pastor. Anyone know his pastor's name? Reverend Lovejoy. Matt Granian is from Portland. And he asked Reverend Lovejoy, with all that's happened to us today, I feel like Job. Reverend, I need to know, is God punishing me? Reverend Lovejoy gives a slightly ambiguous answer. Short answer, yes, with an if. Long answer, no, with a but. (laughs) I don't know if I could do any better than that if you asked me if God was punishing you. Ned's not fully satisfied with that, and he thinks, in my darkest hour, I can go to the good book, and as he opens the church Bible, he gets a paper cut from its gilded edges, and at a near breaking point, he cries out, why me, Lord? Where have I gone wrong? I've always been nice to people. I don't drink or dance or swear. I even kept kosher just to be on the safe side. 
I've done everything the Bible says, even the stuff that contradicts the other stuff. What more can I do? I feel like I'm coming apart here. I want to yell out, I just can't dang diddly darn do it. (laughs) One of the most compelling things to me about the Bible and particularly about Job is that it never excises these unflattering images of God. It allows misconceptions about God to stay in Holy Scripture. It allows prayers like Job's or like Ned's that challenges God and asks whether he's even paying attention to stay in the pages of Scripture. And that's encouraging to me. Now, I've probably bitten off a little bit more than I can chew here in one sermon. We read chapter 10, but we're reflecting essentially on the whole book. 10 is a prayer, but the whole book resembles an intense conversation with God. And what I'd like to do is to sort of skin the surface, touch base in chapter 10, and then zoom out to the book as a whole and figure out what is Job complaining about, and then make some comments about the resolution of the book, and then maybe suggest a few applications on what this all says about life and about prayer. Now, chapter 10, Job says, sort of like Ned, I loathe my very life, therefore I will give free reign to my complaint. I love that. God, I'm not asking for your permission, whether you're ready or not. I'm coming in with my questions, with my doubts, and I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel. And he says, does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a mortal sees? He's saying, are you no better than us? And this too should come as some encouragement in a strange sort of way, that God is not afraid of our questions. God is not afraid of our doubts. He's not afraid of us being in His presence in the manner that we actually are, that we don't have to put on pretense to come to Him. God doesn't say, Job, how about a little reverence? How about a little gratitude before you bring these questions? No, in fact, Job is commended by God at the end of the book. He goes on to question, are your days like those of a mortal or your years like those of a strong man, that you must search out my faults and probe after my sin, though you know I am not guilty. And this last line is very important because Job has a couple of friends that come along the way, these apparently wise sages, and they challenge Job. And they actually say, in fact, you are guilty. This is God being God. He rewards the righteous, and He punishes the wicked. Therefore, you are suffering because you have sinned. Sin. But neither Job nor God accepts this as the reason. There's something else going on. It's one thing for your life to sort of fall apart, and you know upon reflection that you've done it. Your reckless choices, your behavior, the decisions you made have led to this juncture in your life where things don't work anymore. But Job is arguing with God because according to him, and believe it or not, according to God, he's lived a pretty righteous life and his life is in tatters. 
You probably know the story because even if your background is entirely secular, you've probably encountered this story before. I had to read it in my public high school. See, there is prayer in public schools. What happens to Job is our worst nightmare. He's a good person who does all the right things, and he loses everything. His family, his friends, his home, his possessions, his health. It takes just 35 verses to catapult Job from a perfect life, an ideal life, what anyone could want, to an ash heap covered in oozing sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And he's completely alone. And all of this has been set in motion ostensibly by God for no other reason than to enter into a wager with his employee, Satan. Now, I know it says Satan, capital S, like it's a proper name, but as an aside, don't read too much into this here because this isn't the Satan of Christian theology. Satan in Hebrew just means adversary or accuser. But during what seems to be an employee check-in where Satan is present, God asks him what he's been up to, where he's been, and Satan responds, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. That sounds like a pretty cool job to me, just walking around and checking stuff out. That's what he's been doing. And God then asks, well, have you considered my servant Job? Uh-oh. God wants to show the accuser, Satan, that his servant Job is righteous in every way and will put up with anything and still not sin and still not curse God. And God wins the bet. He wins the wager because Job doesn't turn away from God or curse God. But of course, there's more to the story. And what follows are 39 chapters of intense poetry and intense prayer in which God does question, Job does question God over and over. And then his friends come in and question Job. And then eventually God weighs in. But he weighs in with questions, not answers. Dozens and dozens of questions back to Job. And finally the book ends in chapter 42 with Job still in an ash heap but apparently with new wisdom and a new understanding of God. And this appears to have been an unsettling conclusion to the book for ancient readers because interpreters, many will argue that the epilogue in Job, verses 7 through 17 of chapter 42, was an emendation. It was added later to sort of tie up a nice bow on this story that Job now has a new family and new wealth And that this was added to create a more palatable ending. See, God isn't such a bad guy. Look, he gives Job back what he took from him. But it seems just a little bit too tidy, too clean. Job's righteousness and patience does eventually pay off, it seems. And righteous people are rewarded with a good life. But that's not the story that Job is telling most of the way through. That if you keep your nose clean and you do what you're told, that life will go well for you. Because after all, even though he's back at prosperity, 
Let's not forget that he lost his original family, his wealth, his health. So that's sort of the summary of Job. Let's see if we can make just a couple of reflections as we begin to wrap up. And first of all, what I want us to see, and I think what Job is telling us, is that life ultimately is perplexing. Even as a believer, even one who knows the Bible, life is perplexing. Terrence Malick's brilliant film, Tree of Life, opens, in fact, with a quotation from Job 38. This is when God begins to question Job. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations, while morning stars sang together and angels shouted for joy. Where were you, Job? That's the opening of this film. And when we open our Bibles, we're meant to learn that all of us are born into a pre-existing world. It seems obvious enough, but we don't reflect upon enough what Marilyn Robinson calls the givenness of things. We didn't design, we didn't create We didn't order the universe that our everyday lives take place in. And the universe is so immensely vast that we're only beginning with our technology to understand it. And there's things that still perplex us. And the characters of Tree of Life go about their everyday lives and relational difficulties and milestones. And then midway through the film, the film stops its narrative as it is and has a 15-minute beautiful visual sequence that basically depicts Job 38 through 41. This is the answer to Job's pressing questions. And it's a majestic sequence that depicts the creation, the beginning of all things from a God's eye perspective. This is what he saw and what Job can't see, what the characters in the film can't see. And it frames the character's everyday lives in a little bit different way. When Job finally, when God finally answers Job, it's out of a whirlwind, out of a storm. And when Job gets what he gets could hardly be called a philosophical argument or a theological reply or an answer that any of us would expect or probably want. He's told instead about the dimensions of outer space, the depths of the oceans, the shape of the earth, the power of thunderstorms, the beauty of the stars, the cunning of lions and the loveliness of mountain goats, the strength of the ox, the unlikely speed of the ostrich, the muscularity of a horse's neck, the soaring wonder of eagles and the spouting of whales. That's God's response to Job's questions. Let me tell you about this massive creation that I've made. It seems so unexpected and a little bit strange, as it does in the movie. It's a little bit jaunting when this sequence begins. What is Terrence Malick doing? And yet somehow it works. And it works because God is reframing the questions, reframing the issue. He's not sweeping it under the rug, you see. He's not denying that there are questions to be asked and maybe by and by answers to be given. But he cast all of this out into the larger arena 
of the entire creation. And somehow this reframing has a profound effect upon Job. And make no mistake, God is putting Job and the readers, that is us, in our place. It's not that there's no explanation, it's just that maybe the explanation is beyond our present comprehension. It's not that there's no rhyme or reason to life, it's just that we need ultimately to trust God, who is ultimately in charge, to do the right thing, to bring matters to their proper conclusion. You see, ultimately, is if God has done this, if He has made this creation as it is, could He not bring it to conclusion in a way that we would want and would love and long for? You see, ultimately, it's a, it's a call to faith and to trust. If we knew all the answers, if we knew the end of all things, with perfect clarity, where would trust be? Where would faith be? First of all, life is perplexing, and to know that we exist and that we're not God is one of the most important, one of the most unskippable steps in any kind of spirituality, really, but particularly in Christianity. Life is perplexing, but Job is also about suffering. And we see, secondly, that life is hard. I've got a couple of t-shirts that I've had for years, which is surprising because I lose everything and all my clothing after about a year of having it. But these are those Life is um, Good t-shirts you see all over REI, and they're made with really good cotton. And so, you, you know, I touched them. I was like, oh, i got to have this. And over years and years of wearing them, they've gotten even softer and softer. So now I just use them to, to sleep in. But these Life is Good t-shirts and hats and so forth have these little vignettes of simple things and people taking joy in the simple pleasures of life, camping, throwing a Frisbee, walking a dog, paddling in a river, grilling out. And these things are, in fact, good. But every time I put on these shirts, life is good, I think, what a lie. (laughs) This is such a lie. Because life is sometimes good, but life is sometimes really, really terrible and awful. And Job gets this, and he asks God, why? Why would you design a world like this? Are you no better than us? And God appears in a storm, in a whirlwind, which is part of the answer and part of the revelation. He reveals himself not as a problem to be solved, He reveals Himself not as a concept to be systematized, but He reveals Himself as a mystery to be contemplated and to be in conversation with. We looked at Ecclesiastes a number of years ago, and one of the things that Kohelet, the writer, the person who is reflecting in Ecclesiastes, concludes is that everything is vanity. Our world is meaningless. There is nothing new and this is important, under the sun. What we need is something, someone, who is in fact beyond the sun, who is not limited by temporality, who's not limited by the physical parts of our world, the uncreated maker of all things. And this is who enters in 
to Job's story. This is who comes and questions Job. And this is who enters into our perplexing, difficult world as well. Not with simple answers, not with platitudes, but with what? With himself. Life is perplexing. Life is hard. But finally, our last reflection is that you're not alone. And I want you to hear this because often Job is construed as basically a theodicy. That is, how can God be good in a universe where terrible things happen? And I guess it's partly that, a defense of God's goodness, but it's so much more. And I think primarily, what does Job ultimately long for? Is it answers? He says in Job 29, how I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me. Those verses destroy me because he, he misses God. All of these things are one thing, and they're horrendous, but what he misses is relationship. His relational estrangement is worse than his physical pain. It's worse than his philosophical puzzlement. And ultimately, theological constructs are not the source of Job's redemption and not even answers to his very legitimate questions. Rather, it's relationship. It's God Himself. And this for Job is so profound that he describes it in Job 42. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. He heard concepts. He heard about who God was, but now there's clarity. God is no longer only above humanity, distant, remote, but He's alongside He's imminent. He's relational. And this all, of course, is a a presage, a, a foreshadowing of God becoming incarnate, of showing up in person in Jesus. Because God does not just tell, but He shows. He becomes physical. God doesn't just theologize or command, but He comes personally and relationally. Truth is incarnated in a person that if you were alive 2,000 years ago, you could touch and you could talk to and converse with. And Jesus tells us of a God who is unbelievably holy and unbelievably complex and mysterious and yet at the same time near and compassionate and merciful and intimate and relational. And He steps into our lives of pain. And He steps into our lives of suffering and of sin. And He says as the ultimate messenger of God, you are not alone. Life is perplexing. Life is hard. But you are not alone. The truly righteous one suffers. And that's ultimately the answer, that God suffers with us, but He also suffers for us, and He allows evil to do its worst to Him 
to begin the end of the story, to begin to unwind everything that is sad and untrue and broken about our world. And that's why I had Jen read another Old Testament passage, because the ancients like Job, the ancients like Isaiah, look ahead to this time where God Himself will appear, not in a whirlwind, but in a person, physical form, and He will begin to unwind things. He will begin the end of the story. And Isaiah talks about it this way, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove His people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in Him, and He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us now rejoice and be glad in His salvation that has come. Let's pray. Father, I pray that wherever we are and however we respond to this story, if we find it difficult to believe, would we at least grant that it's a beautiful story? And would we begin to contemplate it more and consider it more that you say not only that life is hard and perplexing, but there are good things that give us signs and taste of what is coming. And we pray that we would lean into that future that even if we are suffering presently or have suffered greatly in the past, that we would somehow find a foothold in your grace and in the future that you promise. And let us look to that together as a church as well as individually. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.